If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Discussing the politics of the new European populism. Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Yes, hello. Today we're going to talk about some of the most important things in the world, that is life and death and our continued existence. Again, we're returning to that subject to see if we can live longer. And also the relationships between men and women and how I think we're talking about, because we are nearly all in relationships and it's one of our primary relationships. And um, it's sort of, I think a lot of the political debates uh, is a proxy debate for the things that we experience in our personal lives. And uh, maybe it's less so now, but it used to be that uh, capitalism versus socialism used to be the hot topic that used to get people going at the kitchen table on a Friday evening and a dinner party with your uh, husband and your, your wives and people sitting around the table and discussing things. And it came down to Socialism versus capitalism is a proxy debate for the debate between men and women and, and their roles in society, I think. And everyone has a view on that. I think, what? why do we live life? I think for many men, men, I think that answer is a self-evident one. You, you live to compete and to provide. You live to, to pr- You live to create excellence in whatever field you've chosen and to do as well in it as possible, to do to build things and to create things. Whereas I think the, let's say the female life force, because some women don't adhere to it, let's be more uh, balanced in our use of words here. Female life force is sort of redistributional um, to distribute the, the income that the man makes or back in the stone age, the, the sort of reindeer meat that he brought back home to the deserving children. And I think it meant balancing that the, somehow trimming the power of the male because he's a very powerful presence in the home and he's just come in from from fighting as it were and and holding him reining him in 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 a way so that he doesn't harm the children the weak ones at the same time as redistributing that take the, the reindeer meat fairly so that the children can grow up and obviously um if you don't nurture the next generation humankind won't exist and uh the, the mothers who didn't have the mothering instinct, they didn't pass on the mothering instinct to their offspring, so that pretty soon dies out. And I think that the, the very infected debates about uh, feminism and women in the workplace and, and men's role and women's role is sort of related to, to these things. And I think that we've, we've spent the last few weeks, two or three weeks, talking about what systems that, that run the world. Is it run by, by the Saudi oil money? Is it run by... Uh, the intelligence agencies, is it run by the United Nations and their climate s- scam, according to some people? Um, is it run by the Rothschilds or, or whatever? But there's also this bottom-up theory that what is really important in the world is the is the sort of uh, genetic battle, uh, ensuring that you're the fit- fittest survive into the next generation. And that has its basis in the sexual and, and gender relations in the family. And I think that, um, I mean, just to be clear, I, I'm absolutely in favor of, of women, clever women having equal opportunities and going out and competing with men in interesting jobs. And our, our great, great grandmothers or whatever, obviously were could be prisoners in their home and uh, didn't have the same op- opportunities. And the clever ones obviously were looking enviously at jobs that were denied them. 
the same way that like blacks in South Africa were in, in under apartheid. I'm all for that opportunity, but I think what we've got here is a situation may, maybe where where there are a lot of women in the workplace now, and do they do do they have a more holistic w view of the world because of, often they're frequently mothers, and often I mean even the most egalitarian families professors wives as it were and professor husbands who talk about feminism until the cows come home it's always the women who end up uh, doing the practical boring stuff and looking after the children they want to do that and uh, there's always a struggle over this because frequently uh, the woman will then have a career and she has to juggle both things and the male kind of has one job if lucky you know uh, and then has to the woman gets angry because she's so stressed out and you have very high burnout rates among professional women in their 30s and 40s you know even though you thought that the world was created for them the 2020s world and then you've got um, many men who uh, are out of the the labor market uh, and it's some of them at least uh, ascribe it to the fact that they're sort of outcompeted not entirely on merit but because of uh, quota systems and of course if you're a male and you don't earn money for a start, it's a, a working is much more a source of a male identity than for female identity. So it feels depressed. And if you don't make money, I think you you can't. You're not attractive uh, to women, so you can't mate. So we've got all these things. I think I won't. I wouldn't say there's a a single answer to all these things. But what I would like to say is that hopefully, if a, if Trump comes to power again, we'll have a more balanced debate about. Uh, male and female roles and so on and how to the extent it's based on genetics uh much more than than we're taught to believe in in sort of recent left-wing educational theory now one of the most prominent debaters on the swedish side uh, sweden's most liberal feminist country in the world is guy madison who despite his english sounding name is a swede who's a behavioral prof psychology professor from the north swedish town of umeå and he drops truth bombs in his very scientifically well-sourced papers. And I'd like to introduce him, to bring him onto this show to tell us what his theories are. This is TNT Radio. Connecting the dots, painting the bigger picture. They always have great conversation. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hi, Guy. So tell us a little bit about, you've uh, dropped all these interesting truth bombs in your papers over the years. And... Um, what do you think is are men and women in a right in the right place in their mutual relations today it seems that the uh, the discussion the debate is very tense today most of my studies have been from um the, the perspective of, of um, academe and um uh, all the struggles that have been made uh, put forth in recent years to to um increase equality as it were sex equality in academe now the fact of the matter is that a majority of students as you know are female uh, and that is true also of associate and assistant professors in sweden however when you get to the professorial level uh, corresponding to tenured professors in the u.s uh, the proportion of women drops drastically to about 30 percent today and there have been, as I said, uh, a multitude of governmental uh, in, uh, incentives and uh, interventions to increase that proportion. So that's mostly what I've been studying, actually. And why is that? Are, they, are, are women at professorial level discriminated against? 
Well, that is uh, the common theme, and um, but the, the the research doesn't indicate that. On the contrary, um, as I, I know you mentioned uh, in other contexts, we did a study uh, a few years ago. Um, I won't repeat the results, but basically those who were just promoted to professors, uh, they exhibited a quite substantial di difference in the amount of publications and citations, such that women had less of that. In other words, they had lesser merits at the same academic rank, which uh, indicates to me at least quite the opposite, that uh, men must be discriminated against uh, somehow. So even among that 30%, those 30% had fewer papers to their name than uh, than men among the remaining 70%. Uh, yes, for this sample that we investigated, and that sample consisted of those who had been promoted to professors in the last, I think, 10 years, uh, a 10-year period. So, so it tells us nothing about those who were promoted to professors, uh, say, in the 1980s or 1990s, or uh, after, in, in the more recent uh, years, for that matter. But it's likely because uh, of the, you know, a strong in incentives from the government to increase this, it seems likely that this trend has well, increased uh, and still continues to increase. In fact, um, our, one of our previous uh, ministers of higher education, uh, Helian Helmark Knutsson, made some very revealing statements, and she expressed this so well that I would like to actually quote her, if I may. Please, yeah. So she wrote in uh, 19... Uh, sorry, 2017, um, uh, um, she wrote like, although 60% of the students have long been women, three out of four professors are still men. We must have higher ambitions than that. In Swedish universities, women and men should be able to act on equal terms and have the same career opportunities. All too often have no notions about the male genius trumped competence and too often have internal recruitment and networks played a greater role than hard work. And this is in the long run damaging for the quality of Swedish research, uh, end of quote. So that clearly implies that, uh, you know, it more or less explicitly states that uh, old boys networks um, are uh, more important than actual merits. Now, as to what she wants to do about it, I can uh, quote a little bit further down. Do, uh, yeah. Quote, uh, new recruitment goals for equal sex distribution amongst newly recruited professors are written into the university's letter of regulation. Uh, end quote. So the regulatory letters are, so to speak, the instructions from the government to each um, each and every university in Sweden. I continue uh, the quote. The cabinet has set a national goal. Equal numbers of women and men shall be recruited as professors 2030 at the latest. The cabinet therefore charges the universities with the task of following up the distribution of research funding from an equal opportunities perspective. It is important that each institution oversees the distribution of research funding across women and men." End of quote. So that seems to me to be an instruction to uh, favor women regardless mm. of merits. Uh, 
and th this uh, and this uh, then is perfectly reflected in those um, results that I just mentioned just mm. before. And I think one of the most, um, I mean, if it is the case that we employ, we select people who might not yet be quite as qualified as other people just because they have the wrong sex, then obviously this has to lead to a lesser, poorer quality of research or lesser productivity. It's, it can't be any other way, I suppose. But and what is actually, yeah. yes, please. No, no, carry on. No, I mean, we, a lot of this um, equality debate is very boosterish. It talks about who benefits and we're going to help these people. But sadly, recruitment is a zero sum game. I mean, if an underqualified person gets the job, an overqualified person who worked very hard doesn't get the job. So it's unfair. I mean, it's not, uh, it's, it seems fair on the surface, but it, it is unfair. But but carry on what you were about to say. Well, of course, uh, the assumption seem here seems to be a very simple one. If the uh, outcome isn't equal, there has to be some foul play, some kind of discrimination. That is not so obvious. As you said in your introduction, uh, men and women have different priorities, different interests and different uh, interests. Um, and and this is a very difficult issue because th this whole debate, this whole uh, uh, way of setting up the two sexes against each other, of course, creates quite a lot of resentment. And I'm I'm personally very saddened about this situation where, on the one hand, men feel that today they are being actually discriminated against or um, uh, at least seen as somewhat uh, bad people uh, as compared to women because of the implication that men, uh, to a greater extent, engage in power play and so on. And uh, as I mentioned, these um, male networks uh, pr that presumably exist. And on the, on the other hand, it's very sad because it obviously um, creates resentment amongst women too, as they are uh, continuously informed that every, uh, that the system that they are working in is rigged against them. That must be a horrible thing to perceive. And uh, I, I have many wonderful uh, colleagues, um, many great collaborators, brilliant researchers, scientists that I know who ha happen to be women. And um, I love to work with, with these collaborators, but it is not because they are women. I work with them because they are brilliant, because they are uh, good academics. Uh, and I, I, I'm deeply concerned about this uh, focus on, on sex, which uh, we call um, a demographic category, for example. Um, in psychology, because May it's... I just interrupt. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if women feel that really clever women, and it's fantastic, you know, brilliant, feel that they've got, feel that their people they surround themselves with think they got their job because of some kind of quota, they'll resent that. They want to feel that they got their job on merit. You know, they don't. Isn't that true? Of course. Th yeah, right. Carry on. What just as much, uh, yeah. just as much as men do not want to feel that way, or or men do not want to feel uh, w um, 
thwarted by by the system as as mm. uh, you know a, a number of recent research reports uh um, for example, from Stephen Sessi and uh, and colleagues in the last five ten years, show a clear uh, discrimination uh, against males in the academic uh, community when it comes wow. to hiring. Mm -hmm. Wow! So, in fact, we, the the old boy network it should, ought to be called the old girl network or something like that. <laughs> Well, um, it, possibly there is uh, there is that kind of thing. I don't know, um, but uh, to me, my experience is that academia is not uh, particularly <laughs> a network uh, type of organization. Uh, it is, in one sense, uh, very competitive, and it's each to each to his own or to her own, to a large extent. At least when it comes to to the um, critical issues uh, of um, getting uh, research funding, uh, being promoted to, to the high rank and so on. So did your these arguments create a stir? And uh, uh, I mean, are they seen as controversial in Sweden? Uh, yes, very much so. And there we have this very strange discrepancy um which is on the other on the one hand in the public debate uh it is very clear that people think or most people think or just at least want to desperately think that there are no essential differences between the sexes and if there are any differences it's just because of socialization upbringing environmental factors and all that whereas on the other hand uh, there is um quite you know, a large thriving areas of academe that study, uh, precisely study sex differences. And uh, it's very well documented that these uh, differences uh, exist uh, on the group level. That is not to say, as usual, uh, that they apply to each and every individual. But they, they are quite substantial effect sizes in uh, sex differences for certain psychological traits. And of course, now I'm only speaking about psychological traits that's uh, manifest in behavior and preferences, not at all about physiological or, or such traits. And so we have this, um, uh, this rift, uh, as it were, between what the science says and what people in general want to believe. And, and that is very pro problematic because people who then uh, mention the uh, academic research, uh, they are made out as uh, being on the wrong, si wrong side of history or being misinformed or something like that. Uh, so it's a very strange situation. And I notice very clearly that most academics, you know, the reasonable types that do, do not engage in this kind of research at all, they are very uncomfortable as soon as sex differences um, are mentioned. And that is not a situation we, we want to have. Academe should be open to, to debate and open to discuss the facts. But mm -hmm. in this case, this is a sensitive, highly controversial topic, apparently, that most uh, people um, just simply want to talk about. Uh, it, and, and of course, it, it's silence. resentment. It creates resentment because if women or any category is convinced that their lack of representation 
on a group level is due to discrimination because men and women are exactly equal in every regard. Um, underperformance has to be due to someone's oppressing of you and that creates bitterness. Rather, it could have something to do with interests or, or time spent on the subject or energy or even in some areas like spatial intelligence. Is Would you say that's correct? I mean, I used to work for an engineering magazine and this was a taboo subject. Why, why are there not more women engineers? Uh, yeah, well, but the obvious answer uh, to me is that women don't like playing around with objects so much that some do, but not at the same level as, as men do. Yes, well, this is a huge issue and it's quite well researched. So uh, researched. So there's there's a lot of literature out there that anyone can find on through uh, in scientific journals and, and even books and uh, whatnot on the Internet. So I'm not sure. It, the, this is the place to to delve into that, but uh, very briefly, uh, there are certainly differences in interests and, and motivations. Now, when you bring this up, uh, the uh, uh, feminist-inclined people tend to uh, argue then, of course, that yes, well, there might be these differences in the manifest behavior, but again, they're only the product of some kind of social socializing and mm. um, in fact we recently uh, charlotta stern and i we recently published a paper in an economics journal where we argued for the importance of considering these sex differences when uh, studying uh, occupation uh, differences and, and work life uh, and things like that and um as always with these questions, it, it is much more difficult to have these kind of arguments uh, published. Uh, so I have had this experience quite personally that uh, there is a, a very strong bias against sex differences research, uh, whether it is original uh, empirical work or whether it's some kind of theoretical uh, or um, review of uh, a research field. Just to change, but maybe the I missed. Uh, did I answer your question? No. Sorry. Yeah, you know, you me. did. It makes perfect sense. Everything you said is crystal clear and good. Uh, but we're just going to move on. We can return to the subject on another interview. I mean, I think you're very brave to do this, and I think that uh, I, I won't mention the journal's name because I might sue me or something. But I think some very famous British science journals dare not um, mention sex differences, and they're written editorial which is to me is, is about, it's like kind of Lysenkoism in the Soviet Union is it's as dishonest. So obviously the politics took precedence over science and that's damaging because it'll probably bleed into other subjects. But you've done interesting research in other areas. Uh, for instance, smacking or spanking has been banned in Sweden until, from 1979. And that's taken as a, as a scientific truth. And it's kind of spread to other countries and, and, and built up Sweden's reputation for, for sort of being a child-friendly and progressive and advanced society. And I think in Scotland, but maybe not England, you know, it's also banned and it, Norway, of course. But some studies have shown actually that, that we're not talking child abuse here, but mild smacking can actually produce uh, better behavioral outcomes without negative effects on the child. Didn't you do something, some research on that, which is also a little bomb in the duck pond? 
I wasn't pre- prepared for that issue. I, I've been uh, okay. That doesn't matter. Know, yeah. p- pursue, pursuing uh, many di- different topics. I mean, my my main interest yeah. is actually music and and rhythm. So this is pretty far okay. remo- uh, removed okay. from that. Uh, I, I haven't looked into that paper for some some time. Uh, it yeah. was a collaboration with a colleague, so I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't worry. Really yes. comment on the content, but but you're right. I I was a co-author on that paper. It was mm-hmm. a um, a theoretical paper. We we didn't produce mm-hmm. any new data, but yes, we did mm-hmm. reason about the outcomes of, of spanking. Do you? But I I would mm-hmm. sure. I would, let me just uh, get back to this issue yeah, of of course yeah. of focusing on sex differences. Um, I was thinking that uh, one particularly problematic aspect of this focus is that i mean we are all we all belong to one or the other sex and we're talking about a group uh, phenomena basically when we look at research we we, uh, we uh, aggregate the data from thousands perhaps of individuals and we draw some kind of conclusions from that now i've noticed that people in general have a very hard time it's almost impossible for for them to separate these two layers of of understanding the group perspective on the one hand and the individual perspective on the one hand so whenever we discuss group differences in 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 sex for example it's it's i think it's virtually impossible for any person to disregard that one is oneself male or female and how does this apply to me and i don't and and it creates uh, maybe a lot of reactions and feelings uh, of the kind that oh i'm not that way and this is, doesn't apply to me and so forth so it's mm-hmm. it becomes uh, intertwined and tangled up with the individual perspective mm. and i think op- yeah mm. yeah well, I'd like to summarize. I think we'd love to have you on again, and maybe we could talk about that spanking issue, but we've got to tra- uh, transition to the next guest. And uh, I think uh, probably the public needs basic numerous statistics educations. I mean, I did uh, that at high school and university, but people um, are probably, uh, and probably journalists too, need a better scientific education because often they come from the humanity side of the argument. But it was uh, lovely to have you on. and. Uh, Hope to talk to you again soon. This is TNT Radio. TNT's Patrick Henningsen. Hamza Dahoud was the eldest son of the Gaza Bureau for Al Jazeera, while Dahoud, who previously lost other family members in Israeli bombing raid. And we would say that this is probably, in terms of conflicts, uh, this many journalists have been lost, uh, killed, injured in the whole of the Second World War, and that lasted uh, a number of years. And only in the last three months are we scraping 100 on the uh, journalist uh, fatality list, which is coming fast and furious out of Gaza. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. 
Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. From the Cold War to propaganda and the deep state, Helen Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Hello. Don't say that this show doesn't sometimes uh, get back to basics. Uh, our last speaker and I talked about men and women and uh, sex differences and how controversial that discussion is at universities. Now, our next guest, Adam Grease, is going to tell us about how to live longer and better lives. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your your work and your projects to enable us to live longer? Yes, absolutely. So I'm the co-founder of Vitalism, which is the movement to uh, solve biological aging and death. And so our movement's idea is really quite simple. It's the insight that humanity is dedicating very marginal resources to address aging from a scientific perspective, and that both aging and death are our greatest common problems, and therefore resources should be uh, allocated accordingly for us to have a shot at solving these problems. Now, because this is such a monumental task, and because most of the world and most people don't really confront the idea that this is even tractable. Um, we have a three-step strategy to achieve the goal. Step one, create a namespace and unifying ideology, which is vitalism, that people can rally around and say, hey, I believe in this. I want to solve aging. I want to solve death um, through technology, through science. How can we uh, coordinate to do this? Number two, establish an ecosystem of companies and individuals that can work collaboratively to create that kind of influence and uh, change in the culture and in the politics and the economy. And number three, achieve influence by consolidating our resources. So that might mean focusing on specific jurisdictions, special economic zones, and creating influence at the state level. And state level is meant in an abstract sense. So that could be uh, at the government level, it could be at the regulatory level, or it could be at the economic level, but with a scope that states generally try to aspire to. Adam, I guess I talked to one of your fellows in the life extinction movement and he said something that's astonishing because i think in the public mind there's this idea that the zuckerbergs of this world are, are secretly planning to have their heads cryogenically preserved or they've built big bunkers with with cryogenic chambers but he says that the, you'd be surprised how little the billionaires of our planet spend on extending life but they is that true yeah, that's absolutely true. It's one of the common misconceptions about this space. There are, according to, I'd say, private sources, about 6,000 billionaires in the world. And of those, probably less than 1% have dedicated even $1 to science and technology to 
confront aging and death. And even the so, ones who have, they allocate maybe a, a tiny percentage of their net worth, maybe less than 1% of their net worth. How are you going? What have you done? So what have you achieved so far? And what are your plans to, apart from talking to people like us, you know, what are your plans to raise consciousness and, and get money for it? I mean, do you have any pilot projects? So you said something about political, uh, creating political communities where you devote yourself to life extension. Talk about those things. That's right. So what I'd like to do is give you some examples of what you can do with relatively small numbers or small amount of resources that could be quite influential. So uh, okay. this year, as of October, in the United States, in Montana, there was a law passed, which is an expansion of the right to try. Have you ever heard of right to try? Right to try? No, no. So this is a concept that was uh, developed uh, in the US since around 2016, et cetera. It started rolling out in different states independently, which was saying, hey, there's this compassionate youth pathway uh, that the FDA acknowledges, which allows people to get phase two, phase three interventions, meaning they pass the phase one step, which is the core safety step. And people who are terminally ill are then able to get these treatments. So this ties into this greater question of how do we accelerate the tempo of scientific development and get treatments to people earlier, including potentially life extending treatments in the context of combating aging. Now, what happened was the states rolled out these laws and eventually people earlier, including potentially life extending treatments in the context of combating aging. Now, what happened was the states rolled out these laws and eventually at the federal government, they decided that they have to make it a, a sweeping change over the whole country because there was confusion around who gets what um, right to try. So from expanded from a compassionate use, they moved to a case where anybody who is terminally ill can get any treatment, which is phase two, phase three. But in uh, October of last year, Montana rolled out a law which expands this right to try to anybody, not just the terminally ill. And this was promoted wow. by one state senator called Ken Bogner, who decided uh, in collaboration and by uh, aligning with some longevity ideas, uh, longevity is one of his platform uh, points, that this would be very helpful for biological and uh, technology innovation. And so now you can go to Montana from any state in the U.S., and get any phase two, phase three uh, drug or medical uh, device applied to you with a doctor's consent. This is really quite monumental, and it only took the effort. Amazing, yeah. Of a state senator. Yeah, I mean, just to summarize, or just to, if I understood you correctly, what you're saying is, I mean, I always thought, I've always, I've always thought this. I mean, medical experimentation or clinical trials. I used to work for a medical magazine. is an incredibly expensive process and if people are dying anyway and it takes many many years and there might be many promising drugs out there in the pipeline but uh, if people are going to die anyway because uh, all this is done in the name of the safety of the patient you know you mustn't harm the patient but people who are about to die or quite close to dying might say well i don't care because if i don't if this drug harms me i'm going to die anyway i mean so it doesn't matter i might as well try it and you're saying well so that that is on the legislative uh pipeline or in, in in various states but montana's actually gone a step further that i you and i could go there or relatively healthy people and say well i want to try these drugs now because i can live longer and if if it harms me that's my problem i mean is that what you're saying it's a it's an extremely exactly right. libertarian position exactly yeah. it's a landmark law which i think mm. even regulators still don't understand the implications of and I'll just right. add to that briefly that, you know, you look at Montana, that's a very libertarian. It's a red state in the U.S. It has its own ideology. Yeah. But if you look at other states, 
those are places, let's say, a more uh, government or centralized oriented states or countries that could be Sweden or maybe Australia or maybe a blue state in the United States. They might be more open minded to allocate government funding for their own state school departments of aging biology. So depending mm. on what the jurisdiction is, when we think about our movement and how we allocate resources, whether to support certain um, political efforts or policies or influence the local economy, we will make different suggestions depending on the jurisdiction and the benefits to the population there. Wow. Um, so is our Montana businesses, medical industry sort of uh, limbering up to prepare for a, an influx of people from all over the United States who want to live longer? You know, will, is Montana the new Florida snowbird destination? Yeah, it's a great question. My sense is that the answer is no, and that this is such a surprise that most medical providers in Montana are probably not even aware of it. Now, I will add briefly that it's not exactly so simple in the sense that now, even if you have that doctor's recommendation, you still need to get the intervention from the company that's developing it. And so that may run into some other hurdles, whether it's transporting the drug across state lines or establishing a lab or manufacturing facility locally in Montana. So even though this is a huge opportunity, and I do think this is going to blossom and create a lot of economic benefit for Montanans, this will take a little time to play out and people are still weaving the specific pieces together. Hmm. So what you're saying is that... Um somebody else might or it might be on a federal level there might be legislation against bringing in life extending drugs to montana they could cause a, a problem there i don't think that there would be legislation and in fact when you look at the right to try case the previous right mm -hmm. to try which was passed in the states and not federally the federal government has been very hesitant in confronting states and that makes right. sense at the end of the day if you think about the fda they're mm -hmm. generally risk averse because part of their mandate is do no harm to people, make sure nobody gets hurt. So by the same token, that risk averseness causes them not to want to confront a state because if they lose in court versus a state, that would remove their potential stick or um, ability to create leverage for other states to, let's say, uh, behave in a way that they think is appropriate or desirable. So I don't think there'll be a confrontation necessarily between the federal and state level. But I do think that there are complications in the sense that drugs and medical devices are things that are owned, that IP has been developed by some company. And so to deliver it from the company, which has a warehouse or a lab somewhere to the patient, which may be in Montana, through a doctor who needs to be trained on administrating the uh, pr protocol, et cetera, will just take a little bit of time. So I think it is an earthquake and a landmark moment um, but realizing it might take six to 12 months or maybe a little longer. Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting to see if the presidential campaigns jump on this issue because isn't it the two oldest candidates in history? You know, I mean, they're not, uh, they must be thinking of their mortality quite a lot. Um, do you think, are you trying to insert the issue into the national presidential debate or you're sort of leaving it for the states for the moment? Yeah, it's a good question. We haven't really put a focus on that yet, but I will say it's ironic that both candidates, leading candidates, Biden and Trump, uh, seem to um, be al aligned in terms of their motivation or incentives to solve aging, given their circumstances. Um, but I will say that 
generally, we have this bigger problem in the US, which many more people are coming around to, which is the sick care problem. So we spend over a trillion dollars in government money. I'm not talking about the private industry on the healthcare system, which could perhaps be called sick care system. Because in the US, and this is true of many other countries too, we wait until problem, uh, problems emerge. And only then do we take action when it's extremely expensive and we're not actually doing very uh, much good. In fact, in the United States, about a third of Medicare and Medicaid, which is something like three, $400 billion a year, goes to the last few years of life. And it's not even extending lifespans by very much quality or quantity, which is quite ironic because you would say, well, some people say, well, what are you talking about extending lifespans? That's science fiction. That's not true. We're trying to extend lifespans right now. We're just doing it in a very inefficient and wasteful way. So uh, we'll talk about after the break, Adam, is presumably how one can reallocate that money from the last years of, of a poor quality life to an, an earlier stage intervention. This is TNT Radio after the break. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. Not only does the government want to put Donald Trump in jail, the media doesn't want you to hear what he has to say. Take his victory speech after winning the Iowa caucuses this past week. At this point in the evening, the projected winner of the Iowa caucuses um, has just started giving his victory speech. Uh, we will keep an eye on that as it happens. Uh, we will let you know if there's any news made in that speech, if there's anything noteworthy, something substantive and important. MSNBC would not bring their viewers Trump's comments live after he won. Why? That is not out of spite. It is not a decision that we relish. It is a decision that we regularly revisit. Um, and honestly, earnestly, it is not an easy decision. But there is a cost to us as a news organization of knowingly broadcasting untrue things. That is a fundamental truth of our business and who we are. And so his remarks tonight will not air here live. We will monitor them um, and let you know about any news that he makes. And this censorship of Trump by the media is exactly what the same media tells you Trump will do to them if he's elected. Wow. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malzberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on TNT. The Kids Cancer Project funds vital research into childhood cancers. And you fund the Kids Cancer Project. Funding research means giving children back their lives. And who knows what kids with cancer could grow up to do. The Kids Cancer Project. Survival starts with science. Donate now. The Kids Cancer Project. Geopolitical commentator and investigative journalist. You're listening to Pella Neuroth Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. TNT. So we, we've got Adam here, who's going one of those good news guests who tells us how we can live much longer and better lives if we do various measures. Um, you are talking about a reallocation of resources now from sick care to health care. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, so when we think about this notion of waiting until we get sick and then going to the traditional hospital system or uh, medical system, we're seeing a lot of wasted resources and relatively poor outcomes. And so the question is, how could we intervene earlier? How could we change the resource allocation to create better outcomes? And there are a few ways we can do that. So one important way is just having more diagnostics and the opportunity for preemptive intervention in things that have to do with lifestyle. 
Now, in the US, a lot of companies have popped up in the last several years. You may have heard of uh, Brian Johnson's Blueprint or Tony Robbins and Peter Diamandis launching their Life Force Initiative or Biograph and many concierge clinics, which are basically putting this power into private hands because the uh, healthcare system, the typical healthcare system, is not really rising to the, the challenge, including the insurance companies that haven't really understood how to integrate this, even though some of them have good intentions. And so the idea is that starting at a relatively early age, you go and you get very thorough diagnostics. That could be your VO2 max, your glucose response, maybe a full body MRI to detect problems, a full uh, blood test that cover many biomarkers, including of aging, et cetera. And then that data will enable you to take action. And just to give context to that, just think about a person who's going to their primary care physician in many cases, people don't even look at the uh, change over time. So they'll say, well, hey, you know, uh, Pele, your uh, LDL is 96, and that's under the reference range of 100. So we don't need to do anything right now. We don't need to take some action like put you on statins or some other intervention. But what they may not be looking at is that three years ago, you were at 85, and three years before that, you were at 75. So there's this negative trend. These facets of treatment and diagnostics, I think are going through a revolution, starting with the private industry. And then later, I think it'll come to uh, the public healthcare systems worldwide as well. And that will probably reduce costs and extend health span. Hmm. I was, um, I'm, I don't mean to turn this into a sort of healthcare show, health advice sure. show, but I was, I went on to keto a few years ago and, uh, because uh, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and then I lost 40 kilos, and I lost my diabetes, and um, uh, all my markers were excellent, you know, and that ma made me realize that I always thought that things like diet were, you know, not serious, and that I focused on medical care. I, I, I guess many, 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 many young doctors might think, oh, well, healthcare is where, where the prestige is at, whereas whereas nutrition is not so cool. But I realized nutrition is the root of, of a lot of things, you know. And then yes. I wondered, um, and then I took, uh, started taking metformin and I realized that, that for instance, metformin, I looked at st statistics, uh, a diabetic person who takes metformin has a longer lifespan than a healthy person who doesn't take metformin. So I guess um, you in the life extension community are looking at these drugs and saying, well, pe could pe healthy people take them over a much longer period than we think? Uh, I, so this is an uh, issue of self-interest. Do you guys look at metformin specifically? Yeah, so I mean, uh, at vital, vitalism is a philosophy and more of a socio-political movement. So we don't necessarily look at a specific intervention with great scrutiny, although we do try to form some positions and share them with the public so that they're more aware, given our connection to science, scientists, etc. I will say that metformin is a good example of a promising intervention that may have some marginal impact. So it has... I would say positive impact, it seems, for people who are pre-diabetic or have impaired glucose response. Whether it would be effective for people who start off within the normal range is still to be determined. The data, as far as I know, is not very conclusive on that. But I think right. you're absolutely right to highlight that there are already some interventions that could extend health span and maybe mm. even marginally extend maximum lifespan that could be better investigated and deployed. The challenge when you think about this, and this has to do with 
the testing apparatus that we have is that regulatorily in most countries in the world, including the US, the EU, probably Australia and other places, if you want to deploy a drug to market, and that means basically any intervention of the manner that we're discussing, it has to pass these three clinical steps and there have to be the trials and there have to be the results that support the release, right? Now, the question is, let's say metformin does extend health span by one or two years or five years. How are you going to investigate that? Are you going to take a cohort of a thousand people and track them for 10 years? That would be monstrously expensive. And so these are some of the challenges besides the fact that the FDA doesn't even really have a model. And this is due to lack of scientific uh, foundation to analyze things through biomarkers rather than wait for the morbidity data. Right. Isn't it also a problem about, about patents? You can't patent some of these things. So there's no incentive or no profit in it for the large pharma manufacturers. Yes, I mean, this is true. And so as a result of that, we have what I would call kind of this um, state of lack of clarity. We have a lot of interventions that probably do some good. They may be supplements or nutrition oriented, et cetera. And nobody has the motivation to investigate them. But I will say that probably none of these interventions have an effect size that is so large that there's some secret fountain of youth there. Because if there were, you would expect it to be like steroids. People would just take them illegally because they would be so effective. You wouldn't need to convince anybody that they work. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Do you... In, um, in Montana, are there stage two and three uh, trial medicines that uh, are promising? And are you able to give us a glimpse of what they could offer? Yes. So I'll give you one example I think is interesting. First, I'll say that anything in phase two and phase three means everything in the entire pipeline. So if you think that some percentage of drugs and interventions will in fact reach the public, in five to seven years, which are today in phase two, well, th the challenge is we just don't know which ones are going to pass, the FDA will say, right? So what Montana has done is say, we're going to delegate this to the individual. The individual should have the choice. Now, mm -hmm. then the question is, okay, what kind of interventions uh, would one say may be promising? An example I think is interesting is stem cell treatments. When you talk about st autologous stem cells, so this is taking your own stem cells out, proliferating them in culture outside your body, and then re-injecting them to reduce inflammation, uh, improve healing, and improve different uh, aspects of regeneration and, and other uh, clinical benefits. These are treatments where the US has actually lagged. So Japan, Chile, Panama, Mexico, uh, South Korea are more allowing, have either passed trials for these treatments or have an op a more open regulatory system where you can culture these stem cells for and proliferate them for more than three days and thereby get a very large amount of them. Whereas in the US, the FDA says that if you culture stem cells for more than three days, they are considered a drug and must go through the trial system. Now, because there's so much evidence in other countries, having stem cells applied in Montana seems like a very promising route where there's a lot of evidence globally, and there are companies in the US that are already in phase two, phase three trials for exactly the same treatments that they may have been already deploying in other developed countries. Wow. So that's the most promising 
that's the, the closest to a fountain of, of youth if we're looking at the spectrum of things available in your estimation is is, is the stem cell route well i wouldn't say that in that i don't think that stem cell treatments are actually going to create rejuvenation nor will they necessarily halt aging or even slow aging but they may increase health or health span and those are noble goals yeah. at vitalism our goal is to completely reverse aging or stop it and defeat death in the long run and to do that we can't just rely on existing health span interventions we have to focus on fundamental r d and leverage the transformative ability of science to do things with biology we know that humans have an immortal cell line and what i mean by that is that we all are descended from some human way back in the past a million years ago how is that how is it that your old cell a sperm cell and an old ovum can produce a new organism and how a clone a clone from your own cell can have a normal lifespan this is what's been shown in animals and we believe it to be true in humans as well which means the information of youth is not lost it's still preserved in your dna and now it's up to us to use science to figure out how to unlock it and provide health and wellness indefinitely for as many people as possible wow this is heady stuff um do you think uh, people are mentally prepared for this um because the, one of uh, another previous speaker I talked to said that people are surprisingly cautious about wanting to extend their lifespans and of course the question of living indefinitely raises questions of planet's resources and wouldn't you die of boredom if you abolished aging we'll take the last question wouldn't you die of boredom if you abolished death well i mean i don't think that anybody should be forced to live a life should be a choice and if anybody is so bored as to decide to end their life i think that should be their right um from my own perspective and what i see i think that humans are just incredibly curious and adventurous and will always find some new thing to explore and learn and grow and certainly you know when we talk about indefinitely we don't know how long it might be is it 100 200 years 500 years a thousand years we should just get as much beautiful healthy life because life is a miracle as we can get and i think that should be our focus without being too concerned about some things that may be challenges that happen down the line right now mm. we already are trying to extend lives that's important to remember we're just doing it very poorly mm. well it seems in in the west um, there's talk about lifespans being shorter than the parents generation for the first time ever or the first time in 100 years because of these growing lifestyle diseases or uh, and maybe drugs but um and what about the the the, the problem uh, of planetary resources if we have uh, population growth but without the natural fall away from death i know it's that's a great question mm. yeah i mean that's a common uh, concern and it almost goes back to malthusian times right where people said hey th there's going to be a famine if the industrial revolution continues uh, centuries ago I, I think this is what i would call i come from the tech industry and i built multiple companies in tech previously I would call this an imagined problem. So when you think about product development, there are many, many things on the, on the uh, option horizon of how things may unfold. And this is cherry picking a very specific problem, which is saying, hey, because right now we have population decline, which says, hey, population will expand as a result of longer, healthier lives, which of course we agree is a good thing. And at the same time, we will find no solution, no scientific solution to keep people uh, uh, alive and happy with the resources that we have. I find that very implausible and certainly not a reason to let people age and die. 
Yeah. And I guess this was the last question. Um, should we allow Hitlers of, of the world to uh, live forever or ba bad people, people with bad genes? But I tell you what, Adam, we'd love to have you on uh, and we'll save that question for next time. Should bad people also be allowed to live forever? And who judges that question? Thank you very much. This is TNG Radio.